All right, here we are. We're live, and this is a stream that's sponsored by people who don't care about the real Jesus. <laughs> they just want the meme Jesus. They don't want to get on board with Jesus and his agenda. They want a Jesus that will get on board with their agenda. And what we see in the meme that we're going to cover today, which I'll put on your screen for you right now, is that there's an agenda here that I see happening a lot currently that is, is primarily progressives, but this particular sort of meme is, is more for progressives and progressive progressive Christian teachings and stuff like that. Um, but that they're not the only ones who do it, okay? It's on both sides. It is absolutely on both sides. We see people with pol on political parties of both sides doing all kinds of weird, wrong things with, with the Lord Jesus, right? Because they don't want a Lord, they want a meme. So here's what I see happening here. Um, there's a boogeyman setup. That's the colonizer Jesus column, you'll see. And if you're watching, listening to this on podcast, I will try to walk this through in a way where the visuals won't be as necessary, but I think it's better if you get the video and you can get that on YouTube or BibleThinker.org. But I am on podcast for those who are your podcast uh, people. So you, what you do is you set up a boogeyman. In the case of this meme, it's co the colonizer Jesus is a boogeyman. This is, this is a version of Jesus that people, at least right now, in the world today, generally generally do not believe in but it's the boogeyman, right? Um, and then you're going to re replace the boogeyman with something in this case called historical Jesus, which is basically a progressive Christianity or politically correct uh, Jesus. This Jesus is meant to nod in agreement with the agendas and the, and the policies that the people or the social movement that the people already have in mind before they approach Jesus. At least that's not in every case, right? There's always exceptions to the rule. There's people, there's someone's going to read the Bible and think, I got that historical version of Jesus that was on your screen there out of it. I'm just saying I think that commonly they're going to have their own agendas first. Then they find the Jesus that fits theirs, and they pick that Jesus to be their meme Jesus. Forget the real Jesus. So we're going to go down the list here. We're going to look at all these things that colonizer Jesus is versus historical Jesus, according to the meme. The agenda here today is to restore a biblical and truly historical view of Jesus, the real Jesus. That's, that's the agenda here. So I'll go down the list. And most of these uh, are just misrepresentations of reality on both sides, right? So um, one, you know, colonizer Jesus supposedly is white, Christian, patriotic, justice through retribution. He died for your sins. He sends sinners to hell. He's silent in the face of oppression. He condemns sinners. He endorses church and state. He's a king. He upholds traditional family unit and he endorses holy war. And the implication of the meme is that all those things are untrue. And then the historical Jesus, it says, is Middle Eastern and brown-skinned. He's Jewish. He was colonized by Rome. He has justice through restoration. He was killed by church and state. He's a friend of sinners and outcasts. He liberates the oppressed, critiques religious people, subverts empire. A homeless man and child refugee had half siblings and was nonviolent. So let's walk through this one, one line at a time. This is going to be an actual honest analysis because what we're going to try to see is that Jesus is more three-dimensional than either of these ridiculous caricatures are. Jesus is more of a whole thing, a whole amazing and varied and deep and thoughtful thing to consider, right? The Lord of all creation who came and lived uh, as a human amongst us. He's more than either of these memes reduce him to. And so... Let's walk through them one at a time and try to get a bigger, fuller version. If you're just looking for snarky one-liners, um, that's what got us into this mess. <laughs> We're going to do a more thoughtful analysis 
of Jesus. And, and, and YouTube, again, is their new thing is to suggest that I insert an ad right now. Uh, now is a good time to insert ads, but I'm, I'm not doing that to y'all. Okay, so is Jesus white versus Middle Eastern? Uh, these are, these are the, the two things. Is Jesus the white Jesus or the Middle Eastern Jesus on this meme? Some people actually do think that Jesus was white. I've never talked to those people before. I've never run into those people. I don't know any of them, but I know that there have been some who thought Jesus was white. I know that they have existed. So I don't deny their existence in reality. I'm just saying this is so, so weird. Um, who is going around telling everyone Jesus is white? And you might say, well, Mike, it's the artwork. It's the artwork of Jesus. Let, let me explain that in just a moment. Why the artwork of Jesus being white isn't nearly as racist as you think it is. <laughs> Um, but at least I don't think it is. And I'll explain why. But what I want to suggest is most people know this. This is why it, it gives rise to these types of memes, right? Where you have trolls on the, on, the, on the left who are like, watch me trigger those Christians. Jesus wasn't white. LOL. Ha ha. Destroyed. Got him. And then the Christians are like, uh, yeah, isn't that obvious? <laughs> this has pretty much been my reply every time in my head when I've seen countless times where someone who probably knows this much about the Bible, gets up in front of a camera and they're like, you know, Jesus wasn't white. And I'm like, right, he also wasn't 12 feet tall. Like, it, this isn't a surprise to me, nor did I have any belief based upon that idea. But here's why I don't care that much. I, I care, but I don't care that much. I think it matters because I want to know the truth about Jesus in every aspect, but it doesn't matter the way that they're suggesting it matters. That there's almost like, there's like racial racism embedded in this this idea that Jesus was white. There have been for some people, don't get me wrong, those nutters who we all agree are out to lunch, who we all, I've been preaching against for many years, right? But that's not Christianity's baggage in any regard, nor is it a popular or global general view and belief about Jesus, that he was this white guy and that that has racial connotations. Um, so here's why I don't care that much about it though. Um, so as, as, as the gospel entered different cultures, historically speaking, it enters communities that are very different than the community you live in right now. You might live in, say, Korea and listen to this, but your Korean community is radically different than it was in the days of Jesus or in the, in the days when missionaries first arrived. Radically different, right? Every community is different because we're all multicultural now. So right now, you could live anywhere in the world and you have a really good idea of what people in other places of the world look like. But for most of humanity, and certainly during the time when artwork about Jesus hundreds of years ago was being made, the only people they ever saw were the people that lived in their local area. And they would have assumed, most of them, that people living in the Middle East looked just like the people around them. This isn't racism. It's just a default situation. Now, this is why there's artwork in Korea that makes, that's, that's of Jesus, that makes Jesus look Korean. That's not racism, guys. That's just people pulling, from, you know, artists pull from what they have. They pull from people they're aware of, models they have around them, individuals they see, and they use them as their inspiration for their art. There's, there's ancient, ancient uh, artwork of Jesus in Ethiopia. And guess what he is? He's black. Why? Because Jesus was really historically black? No, because Ethiopians are black. So he, he comes out that way in their artwork. And, it, and I don't see a problem with it. Unless you start thinking that that represent, that that's like significant, that that's racially significant. Unless you're, you're bothered by the idea that Jesus was actually Middle Eastern, okay, and which he was Middle Eastern. But let's let's talk then about um, why the white Jesus kind of has 
the white Jesus images have spread throughout lots of cultures. In our modern day, I know this being a content creator, when you're looking for the ability to make content, you look for images. And when you're typing an image of Jesus, you naturally go to high art in the Renaissance period produced by a bunch of white people of a bunch of white people. And when they made Jesus, they made him look white because that's what everybody did back then. Okay, this not racism, just normal cultural things. You make art you make people in art look like the people that you've seen in real life. You don't just have psychic knowledge of what Middle Eastern people look like. So um, so why is it that it spread so much? It's because in, as we're looking, content creators, we're looking for images of Jesus to put on stuff, whether it's on books, it's on other stuff like that. It's easier to pull from non-copyrighted, ancient, you know, um, Renaissance artwork than it is to pull from any other source. And so then what happens is this white you know, artwork of Jesus gets transported outside of a culture of a bunch of white people to a bunch of other cultures, and it starts to send a wrong, the wrong message, right? It starts to send the message that Jesus looks different than your culture, and he's white in particular. Um, obviously, it'd be better if everybody had drawn Jesus as Middle Eastern, or something could be better if they didn't draw him at all. I don't think that's a violation of the Second Commandment, um, personally. So the question I have, though, is this um, Middle Eastern Jesus, where does he come from? Some people take this um, this is this has been floating around the internet for a while. This this other guy, the other face you see here, and um, obviously it's going to be closer to the real Jesus, closer. But some people think this is like a forensic archaeologist who actually rebuilt the uh, the face of Jesus using his amazing knowledge of ancient history. Now, if you know a little bit about ancient history, you start laughing when you hear that. Uh, that's not really the case. So yes, it's a forensic arche uh, archaeologist. What he did though is he he did artwork based upon one skull they found from the first century AD. Now then the, from a skull, he tries to fill in how big would the nose be? What would the eyes look like? What would the, the flesh look? Cause skulls don't give you, uh, unlike on TV, skulls don't give you as much data as you like to reconstruct someone's facial features um, in real life. So he fills it out based upon other things that, that you research in the Middle East. You know, how much hair is he gonna have? Well, the skull's not gonna tell you that, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll add it here. How long will the hair be? Well, the skull's not gonna tell you that, but I'll, I'll put it in here. Um, but this is what one guy may have looked like in the Middle East during the time of Jesus. The skin color, of course, is a guess, an educated guess, but it's a guess um, based upon climate. Skin colors tend to be different based upon climates, right? So the uh, the funny thing here is that people have taken this to be an actual picture of Jesus. Like, whoa, so that's what he looked like. No, guys, the whole point is we don't know what he looked like. We just, we just don't know. Nor do you need to know what he looked like. Maybe it was better that you didn't, that you don't think you know. So Richard Neve, the forensic archaeologist, he did this with one skull. It's it's artsy guesswork. It's not actually Jesus. Neither of these is Jesus. Surprise, surprise. Was Jesus Middle Eastern? Yeah, absolutely. That first part of the meme is very true. I just thought I should bring some clarity so people don't think that every time they see a white image of Jesus, that it's actually racism. It's just normal people, you know, it's, it's, it's whether racism existed or not, that would have happened. <laughs> Put it that way. Um, uh, with, with some versions of Jesus. All right. So the next is the second one we get on the list, which is the Christian Jesus versus the Jewish Jesus. Now you'll notice big picture before I go on big picture. Um, both sides are meant to offer a picture, a totality picture of Jesus. And the colonizer Jesus is basically, um, a, uh, I mean, you know, he's Christian, he's patriotic. He believes in, in justice through retribution, 
He died for your sins. That, that's a core Christian doctrine, actually. He sends sinners to hell. We'll talk about all these things. He's silent in the face of oppression. What you get is the idea that there's a, I, I hate to use the term because every time I say the phrase critical theory, people go, oh, there's your boogeyman. And you're like, but, but guys, like study critical theory, like that's critical theory. Okay. So this is a um, very anti-progressive, a very, what, what progressives think conservatives are when it comes to political and religious views. And that, that's that colonizer Jesus. He's meant to represent political and religious conservatives, which are two different categories, but he represents both of them because they're mixed here. The historical Jesus is meant to represent the progressive, the very progressive Christian and possibly even the pacifist um, movement beyond that. So the political progressives, but a step further, almost into like, say, Anabaptist stuff where it's, he's like progressive, um, very politically active, but also nonviolent, maybe even pacifist. That would be kind of an Anabaptist view. So this is all being embedded in these different versions of Jesus. So let, let's dig into them more. Was Jesus Christian or Jewish? That's the next dilemma here. Dot number two. Was Jesus Christian or was Jesus Jewish? Um, now you see already how this meme is royally stupid. <laughs> it's because was he Christian or Jewish? The, the implication, right, the meme level thinking that goes into this, which is un unfortunate, is, ha, Christians, even your Jesus wasn't Christian. Therefore, we have license to rewrite Christianity in, in, a, new, in a new image. Um, that's that's the, the subtext that's never said out loud. But to think that these are opposite things, Jesus was Christian or Jewish, let's just talk about that word Christian for a second. Christian, right, refers to someone who's a follower of what? Christ. What's Christ? What does that word mean, Christ? Christ is the heart of Christianity. The word is Messiah, right? This, the Messiah, which is a Jewish concept, the ultimate savior who the Old Testament prophesied of, who all the Jews were supposed to be waiting for, trusting in, relying upon, waiting for their salvation to come from him. That's the Messiah. The Greek word for Messiah is just Christos, which gets brought into other languages as Christ. So when you say Jesus is Christian, it's like saying he's messianic. Like a Jew, a Jew who's messianic is a Jew who believes in a particular Messiah. In this case, usually it's referring to Jesus. When you say I'm a messianic Jew, usually I mean I'm talking about I'm a Jew who believes in Jesus. Christian and Jewish are not contradictory ideas. They are to the meme thinker here, but they're not in reality. These are not contradictory ideas. So um, let me give you a couple quotes. This is from the Rambam, and you're going to giggle at his name a bit. But actually, the Rambam is one of the most respected Jews in history, in, in Judaism. Modern Jews will look back at this, this uh, Middle Ages Jewish commentator and say that he's one of the most respected. He said the following. He said, the Jews must believe in the coming of Messiah, awaiting him every day with unwavering faith. Anyone who does not believe in Messiah or whoever does not look forward to his coming denies not only the teachings of the other prophets, but also those of the Torah and of Moses, our teacher, for the Torah attested to him. That sounds kind of like Jesus's words when he said the entire Bible was of the whole Old Testament, right? The law and the prophets were about him. Here's, a, here's, here's the Rambam, famous and highly respected um, amongst Jews pretty much universally. And there, there he is saying the same thing. Why? Because the Messiah is a core tenet of Judaism. When the Rambam laid out his like 13 principles of what what you need to be a Jew, right? These are things, these are, ne these are necessary things. One of them was the Messiah, the one I just read you, believing in the Messiah. Now the Talmud, very, very highly, highly respected religious Jewish work. The Talmud says, 
All the prophets prophesied all the good things only in respect of the Messianic era. None of the prophets prophesied except of the days of the Messiah. That is, modern Jews and ancient Jews and Christians today agree that the entire Old Testament is pointing to the Messiah. We just sometimes disagree on whether or not that's Jesus, right? But, I mean, obviously, I believe it is. I have lots of video content. I have How to Find Jesus in the Old Testament series. I have a evidence for the Bible series where I talk about prophecy of, of the Messiah and how he's Jesus. But the idea here is this, is that Christian is, is just a name for a bunch of people who follow a Messiah who they believe is the one prophesied in the Old Testament. So this meme that tries to put Christian, it was Jesus Christian? Well, I mean, in a sense, he wasn't. Like, if we're not going to be clumsy, he's not a follower of himself. That's weird. But he is more Christian than any Christian. He's the Christ. He's like the uber Christian. He's the ultimate Christian. He's the Christ. He is the one we all follow. And he believed as a Jew, he believed there was a Messiah coming. And when you look at his actual teachings in the, in the scriptures, he clearly thought he was that Messiah. Think about this for a second. He was super Christian in the relevant sense, um, but more than that. He wasn't less than Christian. He was more than that because he was the Christ. So the next thing is to say Jesus was Jewish. Now let, let's let's talk about that. Um, Jesus was was Jewish. Yes. Like, what am I, I don't really know what I'm supposed to say to this. If there are Christians, and there have been, okay, here's a good correction for some strange people out there who they want their own meme version of Jesus. It's not a progressive Jesus, but it's maybe their own. And it is a bigoted, to feed their own bigotry against Jews. They want to act like Jesus himself wasn't Jewish. Like the Christian faith is thoroughly Jewish, thoroughly Jews. Jesus was thoroughly Jewish. We literally have the, the, the gospels, Matthew and Luke, starting with his genealogy to trace his Jewish ancestry. We have uh, Jesus coming and talking about how he is fulfilling these promises, how when he's one greater than Abraham, you know, Jesus was absolutely very Jewish, 100%. So that that's true. That's true. So people who have generally anti-Jewish attitudes, and they want to ignore the Jewishness of Jesus, that's a good correction for them. But it doesn't do what the progressive wanted it to do, which was to sort of be a swipe against Christianity. Uh, uh -uh. That just doesn't work. So the next bullet point is, was Jesus patriotic? Or was Jesus colonized by Rome? Now notice the two options here. We're in a, in, a, in a modern 21st century setting. So when we think patriotic versus colonized, we're thinking of things that the first century people were not thinking of. Because it just probably didn't occur to them to have such an animosity towards colonizers that we have today. I'm not saying we should or shouldn't. I'm just saying it didn't occur to them. It's anachronistic. And the idea of patriotism to them, well, in an American context, patriotism is um, conservative speak for somebody who cares about the country and thinks it's it, you know loves their country, and for in you know liberal speak, patriotism is used for someone who probably doesn't care about gun violence or something like that, right? Like these words have very different meanings than they would to Jesus or those in the first century. So was Jesus patriotic? Um, well, he sort of was, but not in the modern American sense, uh, at least not the meme level thinking sense. Jesus was patriotic in that. He only went to the Jewish people, right? Let's look at the historical Jesus. He only went to the Jewish people. Why didn't he go to Gentile lands? He focused his ministry entirely on the Jewish people. And part of that was because, well, that's to fulfill promises. Yeah, but they're promises he made. So he wanted to go to the Jewish people. He will one day be ruling the world from Jerusalem. And Israel has a very special place in God's heart in their prophetic future. So Jesus was very patriotic in a proper sense, but also no. 
Jesus had things, areas where he wasn't patriotic. At least you might not think he was because he rails against, say, Herod the Tetrarch, calls him a name, he calls him a fox, and, and that's not a positive statement. Um, the, uh, the, the open negative statement about the closest thing to a high Jewish leader that they had is pretty negative. Jesus threatens the Jewish leadership and their patriotism will be connected to trusting their, their, their religious leaders. Okay. They would see the two as integrated and Jesus threatens the high priest that one day Jesus is going to come back to judge. And that guy's going to be, uh, basically he'll be suffering the judgment of Jesus. So there's ways in which Jesus is patriotic about what the Jewish nation is called for about what they're supposed to do and about God's hope, hopeful plan for them, right? That will eventually take place. But there's other ways in which he combats against his country or against, not against his country, I shouldn't say that. Rather, he fights for his country, but does so in a way that doesn't compromise at all the ultimate allegiance to God. So it's, it's just not, it's just more complicated than was he patriotic or was he colonized? Right? So he was patriotic in a sense, but not in the modern cliche American sense. Um, was Jesus colonized by Rome? Yes, he was actually colonized by Rome. This is true. Jesus was colonized by Rome. Um, the, and, and here's what I'm going to say. The Jews were, they were not anti-colonial in the modern sense, where they think colonization is bad as a general rule, but they were very anti-Roman colonies because they wanted their own control of their own nation. So Jesus, his community was more anti-Roman colonies than anybody is today who were just generally anti-colonial. There was war brewing where the Jewish people, even 30 years after Jesus, 40 years after Jesus, they actually revolted and they actually took arms against Rome and fought back. One of Jesus' followers, Simon the Zealot, was probably one of these sort of guerrilla fighters who was seeking to undermine Rome. And catch this, this is huge. This is very much historically accurate. The, the expectation, one of the primary things the Jewish people thought the Messiah would do at the time was deliver them from the Romans. They hated that they had been subjected to the Roman government and they wanted freedom and to control themselves. They hated it. And they thought that the Messiah would lead an army against Rome. Jesus was not interested in that. Now, this is where the progressive Christian meme starts to fall apart because colonization, uh, not colonization in a general category, but specifically Rome, Rome controlling Israel, who's supposed to be like the head, not the tail and all that in scripture. And um, this is something that, that they were very much against, but Jesus didn't care. That's the shocker. Uh, progressive Christians who want to make Jesus all about anti-colonial stuff, like that's, sorry, like that's not his main concern. I'm not saying colonization's good. I'm saying it's not his main concern. And I want to let Jesus guide and direct us on what he thinks and how we should follow him best. And it turns out his main concerns aren't things dealing with this earth and these temporary systems but things that deal with eternal life and things that deal with eternal, eternal destinies. Those are the main concerns. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So was Jesus colonized by Rome? Um, in a sense, uh, yes, but he didn't seem to care that much. When he was asked the question of whether they should pay taxes to Caesar or not, Jesus responded and said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, give unto God what is God's. This was potentially a problem because they thought this could get him to lose his following because his following wanted to, to throw off the Romans and reject them. So when he's like, yeah, you know, give to Caesar what Caesar, he kind of looked around and was like, look, this is the circumstance you're in. You've got these, 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 um, these taxes coming from Rome in addition to the other things you have for your own nation that's being subjected to them. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. This wasn't his fight. 
Um, he also wouldn't let his servants fight. Let me give you a, a scripture on this. This is in John chapter 18, verse 33 through 36. We'll come back to this later as well. Pilate, now here, here's Jesus encountering the governor of Judea. Like this, this guy is the governor of, of, of what would have been the capital, right, for Israel at the time, if they had control of their own government, uh, full control. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and said, Jesus said to him, excuse me, and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Do you get, this is the point where Jesus could be like, yeah, you, you colonizer, you know, he could, he could rip on Pilate and be like, rise up and rebel against the colonies. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, listen to his answer. Jesus, he, he doesn't fit either side of this meme. My kingdom is not of this world. I've never heard a patriot or an anti-colonizer say either of those things. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world, right? Then he goes on, so Pilate goes, oh, so if you have a kingdom, right? He goes, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. Interesting statement in the Greek. It, it, it's a way of affirming. Yep, that's right. But it's a way of saying like, yes, you said it but you may not have it, but it may not be what you think it means kind of thing. It's, it's an interesting thing. I, I did in my Mark series, I did a whole thing on this word. Um, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. So his main function in his kingdom is to proclaim truth and then have people receive it. In other words, spreading the religious Christian faith. This is, this is the main function of the kingdom. We bring people to the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. We spread the kingdom of God by sharing the things that he said so that those who are of the truth will listen to his voice. So this is neither patriotic or anti-colonial unless you think Jesus is, patri you know, here's, if you can put it in terms that I think Jesus would support, I, I, I believe you would. Jesus is patriotic for the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, which is invading the entire world into people's lives, not to set up powers in the world, but to bring people from darkness to light. He's anti-colonial in the sense that he's fighting against the um, Satan's power over the world. But when you take Jesus and you want to point him at either, um, you know, for the colonizers or against the colonizers, you actually take him off his target, the kingdom he cares about, and you make him all about your kingdom. And that's the problem there. So Jesus is a total patriot for the kingdom of heaven. Right? They cared about power dynamics on earth. We hear a lot about power dynamics nowadays. I'm not saying these things don't matter. I'm saying there's greater priorities. So they matter, but there's greater priorities. J Jesus you know, responds to those who care very much about the power dynamics of Rome versus Israel and their independence. Jesus, he cares about the eternal fate of souls heading for judgment because all these earthly kingdoms are just going to fade and there's a time coming where he'll come and take over. He demands that you be that way too. And, and we get this in scripture too. This is super important. You see where Jesus is being hijacked to make him about your cause instead of you coming under his cause. Philippians 3.20, Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, according to Philippians 3.21, then he's going to subject all things to himself. But until then, our citizenship's in heaven, and we're waiting. 
right? So we're not actually focused on these other secondary issues. First Peter 2, 9, not that they don't matter, not that you can't think about them at all, but don't do them in the name of Christ as if your Christian agenda is to fight colonizers instead of spread the gospel. This is, I think, something that's being lost in our um, politically bifurcated world. <laughs> okay, so First Peter 2, 9, it says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You get this, we're a holy nation. You know, he's talking to people, Peter's talking to people who would have felt that they had nationalities that differed from each other, but their primary thing is that they're part of the same nationality, the same nation, which is God's kingdom. No matter where they are in the world, they're all part of God's kingdom. My brothers and sisters in Australia or Uganda, right? Or, or you name it, around the world, in Russia, in India. They're my brothers and sisters. And we're part of the same nation that will last. And these kingdoms of this world will fade. That's got to be the primary focus if we're going to have a historical version of Jesus. So this is anachronism, right? Um, uh, this meme is Jesus patriotic or is he colonized by Rome? These are two modern sides, right? America's good or America's an evil colonizer. That's usually the subtext that's here. I'm assuming that's what's happening here. Um, they just want to hijack Jesus for their side. I just want to understand the real Jesus because he's my Lord. He's not my tool for promoting my agenda. I am his tool for promoting his agenda. That's the, that's the idea. So when you try to pin Jesus down to one of your sides, patriot, patriot or colonized, you try to do to Jesus what his contemporaries did. Jesus, come fight Rome for us. Be an anti-colonizer. But he's about a bigger kingdom. He's, he's, and he's not fighting for Rome either. He's about a bigger kingdom, a different thing. The gospel is the focus. So whatever nation, whatever government we're in, there we spread the kingdom of God that is not of this world. And if you think I'm wrong about this, I encourage you just read straight through the gospels with this kind of background in mind. Just read straight through the gospels and see for yourself what Jesus actually cared about. He continually points them to eternal truths. It's the things that annoy people because we're like, well, you're just, you're not being practically helping people. You're just preaching the gospel to them and that's it. And it's like Jesus literally multiplied bread just for a lesson to point people to believing in him because that was the biggest issue. Then he wouldn't do it again because it wasn't about the bread. It was about the gospel. All right, next, Jesus. Is he believe in justice through retribution or justice through restoration? This has been a long debate, actually, uh, going on in, the, in, in different theological camps for a while now. So justice through retribution, the idea here is that um, retribution is that punishment fits the crime. That's retribution. It's the, there's a punishment in correct proportion to the crime that was committed. Uh, justice through restoration is the idea, and, and I'm going to say, in, okay, in modern legal theorists, this is different, and I'll talk about that in a second. But uh, everyone lived happily ever after, including the criminal. That's usually what I get from those, I've, and I have engaged with people who believe, you know, God's not into retribution, he's into restoration. Justice isn't about retribution, justice is about restoration. Usually they mean everyone lives happily ever after, especially including the criminal. That's important. That's a key aspect because usually these people will also be universal salvation proponents, right? There's that everyone's going to be saved, sometimes even Satan. Even Satan, eventually, he's going to be, he's going to be restored because there is no justice unless there's restoration. That's the subtext. There's no justice unless there's restoration. Now, modern, side note, modern legal theorists might punch the air because both of these things don't feel right to them. Um, modern legal theorists will, will look at it differently. 
this is not in the realm of normal people talk, but this is how they talk. They'll say that re retribution, it is, that's correct to say it's punishment fits the crime, but they like to point out it's not revenge though. We're not saying it's revenge. It's, it's the punishment fits the crime, but excluding revenge. Um, restorative justice, they will look at as organizing a meeting where the criminal and their victims sit down together. This is to show the criminal the harm that they've caused, to make the victim feel that they're part of the process and that they have a voice, and to work out an agreement for how the criminal can make it right that all parties, including the criminal, can agree to. Uh, this, I'm not trying to so much weigh in on it. I just want you to know, like modern, modern legal theorists, when they say justice, restorative justice, they mean something very different than probably what you do when you're talking about it. Uh-oh. Mike's a bit quiet, even at full volume. Really? That's so weird. Okay, so my settings are looking pretty good. I mean, I could boost a bit. Sorry, you guys. I'm going to turn the volume up, so brace yourselves. Um, check, check, check. Check, check, check. Oh, no. Okay, hold on. It's about to jump up. Lots of things are going to happen. <laughs> okay, check, check, check. That that should do it. All right. I'm trusting that that's going to fix it. I'm so sorry. I feel so unfair. I worked for like 12 hours refining all the system, and then I left a button on that I'm blaming on one of the cats. Yeah. Okay. Let me know. Sarah, let me, shoot me a text. Let me know if, if, if it's legit now. Um, so um, modern legal theories, we're, we're, not, we're not dealing with that. This is in the, the meme is in the realm of normal people talking. And um, it's not either or is my answer. Having explained retribution and restoration, um, my series on important on an important doctrine called penal substitutionary atonement, I've linked it below. And that series gets into this in great detail, great detail, okay, that it's not either or. Justice in all its fullness is most clearly seen on the cross. And Jesus is obviously all about the cross. Here's how you can see both sides, restoration and retribution on the cross, right? It's retributive because Jesus is suffering and dying for our sins. It's restorative because if you trust in Christ, you are brought back to God, forgiven of your sins. And God's justice in the final judgments the same way. If you've turned to Christ, you are forgiven, you are restored. If you rejected Christ, you suffer the just punishment for your sin. It's not a popular teaching, but it's true. And just like you need to warn people when they have cancer, you got to warn people when they have sin that there is judgment coming. And the only path to restoration is through the cross. So Jesus is into both. He's into both. Um, <clears throat> I think the question you have to ask is, which one are you? Are you going to get the justice through retribution because you've rejected Christ, because you've spurned him, because you've uh, pretended to be Christian and you're not? Or are you going to get justice through restoration because he took the retribution on the cross and you can be restored because you've trusted in him? That's, that's, that's the thing that this, this meme is actually now attacking the very gospel itself. And here we go on to the next step where it attacks the very gospel. <clears throat> According to them, colonizer Jesus, stupidest name I've ever seen, <laughs> um, is, uh, has died for your sins, whereas historical Jesus was killed by church and state. This is another false either or dichotomy. Did Jesus die for your sins or was he, was he killed by church and state? Um, can it be both? One is asking why Jesus died, and the other is asking how Jesus died. Why did Jesus die? For your sins. At least that was one of the major reasons, the, one of the primary reasons. Why, uh, how did Jesus die? Well, Jewish religious and political leaders worked with the Roman governor to get Jesus killed. 
So you could say he was killed by church and state. Fine. They wouldn't have probably understood those terms exactly the same as we do, but fine. Yeah, that's, that's right. Most Christians, I think, would acknowledge both. So what's the point in putting the meme up where it says, did Jesus die for your sins or was he killed by church and state when most Christians would acknowledge both of those realities? The reason the meme is there is to get rid of the died for your sins part. The agenda here is to say Jesus did not die for your sins. That, I would say, is a blasphemous meme. This is blasphemy in the name of a historical Jesus. Let's go to Jesus, right? So Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 28, he talks about why he dies. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What did the meme say? Let's go back to it. That it's bad. Colonizer Jesus is bad because he says that Jesus died for your sins. Here's Jesus. You know, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> he says he's shedding his blood as a covenant, deep theological meaning there. It's poured out for many, deep uh, theological meaning about how it's a sacrifice to atone for sins. And it's for the forgiveness of sins. Straight up, Jesus himself says he died for the forgiveness of sins. There is no true version of Christianity that denies that Jesus died for, the, for your sins. There's no true version of that. You're denying Jesus's death. Um, the alternative, they say, is, is uh, killed by church and state, which, of course, yeah, so? <laughs> like, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Now, in modern views, um, we, we tend, some people, and maybe you're making this mistake, and I, I hope you'll hear me out on this. Uh, we tend to think church and state are both evil, and therefore church and state or, or maybe it's the, it's the combination of church and state together. Ooh, church when church works with state. Or church-state when it becomes the same thing. Um, <clears throat> that, those types of considerations were probably not in the mind of Jesus, or at least in his, his focus and his ministry. What he was opposed to, uh, and what scripture throughout time is opposed to, is not state in general, but state that doesn't conduct themselves in a godly way or enforce godly justice right, which includes restoration and retribution. If they don't do both of those well, then God's opposed to it throughout Scripture. And then church, God, Jesus is never opposed to the church. He's opposed to the church not acting properly. He's opposed to the church not doing right things. But there was never an anti-religious sentiment in Christ or in the Bible, not in general. There's, there's, there's times where religious people are critiqued for them not doing their religion right, but never for just being religious people. That That's... that's meme version of Jesus. That's not historical Jesus. Let's go to the next one, though. <clears throat> the next one is that Jesus sends sinners to hell. That is the colonizer, the evil white. Um, and, and this image is super, super like, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> well, to me, it is. <laughs> okay, anyways, so this, this, this white colonizer Jesus, he sends sinners to hell versus the historical Jesus. He's a friend of sinners and outcasts. Uh, this is another false either or dilemma. Um, they would almost certainly accuse me of being too black and white. It's just funny. Progressive Christians are always accusing others of, it, you, they are, this is his, what I notice, of being too black and white. I, I, got, I got a critique um, from, a, from a, a progressive Christian online who was suggesting this about me, that, that I'm too black and white, that I'm too simplistic. But when he went on to explain my views, I was like, those aren't even my views. Like my views are not that black and white. <laughs> what often happens is in order to critique the other side, we, we turn up the contrast so they're black and white as much as possible. They're overly black and white. And that way we can critique them well. That way we can, we can basically say, hey, um, uh, 
Jesus isn't this, he's that, even though we were never saying it was this or that, right? And in this case, it's going to not be either or. He sends sinners to hell, and he's a friend of sinners and outcasts. But what do we mean by friend of sinners and outcasts? That's what I want to talk about briefly. So was Jesus a friend of sinners and outcasts? Here's where I would say yes, and then I'm going to qualify it. Here's where I reject that, that claim um, in my best understanding of, of Scripture. Jesus ate with outcasts. He did eat with them. He preached to them. He healed them. He cared for them, and he called them to follow him. That's, I mean, if you're doing all these things for a group of people, you got to know that that's your friend. This person cares about you. He hung out with them. We should qualify what that means. Uh, he um, preached to them, healed them, cared for them, and called them to follow. But here's where where it's twisted. Modern, and, and I've seen this, and this is not just a progressive Christian thing. Oh, no, not even remotely, okay? I've seen this in super conservative circles, this continual stubborn misrepresentation of what it meant for Jesus to hang out with sinners. So um, I'm just lighting fires everywhere, but I don't care. Let's burn up these bad ideas and bad beliefs about Jesus. Some people imagine that Jesus hanging out with sinners was, was just that. He hung out and didn't tell them about their need to stop sinning. That's what they imagine. When, when they say Jesus was ate with sinners, he, was, he hung out with sinners, what they imagine is he's not telling them to change. He's not confronting their sinful lifestyles. He's sort of just standing there and glowing with, with godly character, and they're just sitting there going, he's so nice and he never confronts me, but I feel so bad about my sin, I'm gonna stop. And they fill in a lot of blanks that we don't know with a lot of really um, wrong ideas about Jesus. So this is not true. Jesus did not just hang out with sinners, failing to tell them about the change that they had to have or the sin that they were committed, committing in their lives. He was there to bring them to salvation and relationship with God, but they had to repent. They had to repent. Do you hear me? They, this was a normal preaching point for Jesus wherever he went. He's like, yes, repent. He, you know, think of the woman at the well that, um, excuse me, the, the woman caught in adultery in John 12, 8, that everybody thinks about. And in this passage, he tells her, go and sin no more. I mean, in this is a summary of a conversation where he acknowledges that her, her lifestyle has been sinful and she needs to stop. So he's her friend and that he's trying to save her from judgment, but he's commanding her to repent. That's the two sides of the coin here. Let's look at some other examples from scripture. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 does the Jesus hang out with sinners, Jesus? Does that meme Jesus pass this test? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you catch this? From that time, meaning just after the baptism of Jesus, just after his time in the, in the 40 days in the wilderness, from that time, meaning continually then and there on out, wherever Jesus went for the next three years, he's telling people, repent, first word. First word, for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. He's bringing them, he's inviting them in in that sense he's their friend, but he is not friendly in the sense of being silent about their sin, not remotely. Luke 5.32. Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so this is the part we leave out. We go, oh, gee, you know, in modern times, oh, Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Hey, sinners, it's okay. Be a sinner and welcome. Let's all just hang out together. But what did he call them to? He calls them to repentance. Now, Jesus, of course, thought everyone was a sinner. Nobody's righteous. So when he says, I'm not, I'm not come to call the righteous, what he meant was, if you think you're righteous, you're beyond help. Until you realize you're a sinner, you can't even begin to come to me. This is part of the gospel being this idea of pointing out sin. 
our air conditioner is broke, so it's starting to get a thousand degrees in here. We're getting it fixed. We're getting it fixed eventually. No, YouTube, I'm not inserting ads right now. Go away. All right. Um, one more verse or um, several more verses. <laughs> okay. Um, let's look at Luke 13, 3. And we'll ask the question, Did Jesus? does Jesus send sinners to hell? Because that's the other part of that meme. Uh, they say Jesus basically is, is not sending sinners to hell. Luke 13, 13, uh, 13, verse 3 seems to disagree with that. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is threatening people that if they don't repent, there's going to be a future perishing that's coming their way. Look two verses later. He says, unless you all repent, you will all likewise perish. He just wants it to be clear. And notice he says about it. Oh, I didn't put it on your screen. He says it about everybody. Here in verse 3, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And then in Luke 13, verse 5, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. This was... Um, this is not a parish that happens incidentally. It happens as a result of judgment. And you know that because the command is repent or perish. Like if you were getting, if you were getting um, suffering in your life that wasn't caused by sin, no one would tell you repent or it'll happen well, because this is judgment related. Let's look at Luke. Let's look at Luke 12, 5. Jesus says, I will warn you whom to fear. You know, people like Oprah like to say, like, I'm not believing in a God I have to fear. Fear him who, after he's killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I, I tell you, fear him. Now, the Father has authority to cast into hell, but he's also, according to Jesus, committed judgment to Jesus, to the Son. Let's look at what happens when Jesus is the judge. Um, Matthew 11, verse 20 and we see how this meme version of Jesus strips him of the fact that he is the judge of the world. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why? Because they didn't repent. You guys notice the theme here? Jesus is like, he's not your friend in the sense of not telling you to repent. He's your friend because he tells you to repent and he lets you. He opens the door to your repentance. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. What? And then he gives, says it about Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, will, be, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Future tense, day of judgment coming. Jesus is the one making the proclamation. Now, if Jesus was as fluffy as people want to make him, oftentimes, he never would have looked at a city and said, you rejected me? Judgment will come upon you. No, no, they would have thought that this is like evil religious, like, you know, dogma and propagandizing and stuff like that. But it was a regular feature of Jesus in, in his, his parables that the people who reject him end up being thrown into outer darkness. Let's, let's look at one, Matthew 25, verses uh, 31 and 32, and verse 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, now that's Jesus's, for those who don't know the Bible that well, I, uh, I'm not knocking you at all, man. I'm, I hope you'll check out my channel. Hundreds of free videos teaching you scripture all over the whole book of Romans, First Peter, we're gonna, we've done Mark, I'll do Hebrews next, and answering questions about all this stuff. Every Friday, Q&A, you can ask any question you want about Jesus, God, the Bible, Christianity, and I'll do my best to answer it um, with what, whatever ability I've got. 
But for those who don't know, when Jesus says son of man, he's always talking about himself. Son of man was Jesus's favorite title for himself. Okay. And it's also a messianic title from the Old Testament because Jesus thought he was the Messiah, right? Catch that. Okay. So when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, what's he going to do on this throne? Verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another as a, sh a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. So what we're getting here is Jesus is separating people for judgment. Now in verse 40, okay, he talks about the sheep, the, the people who he receives into his rest. And then for those he judges, verse 46, the goats, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Restorative and, and um, retributive justice, both happening at the judgment, just like they both happen at the cross. And the only difference is if you're in Christ, you get restored. And if not, you, it's God's justice that is his justice and his just rule of the universe is restored, but you are not, you, you, you get retribution. This, these are Jesus's teachings, take it or leave it. This is the Jesus of reality, right? <clears throat> he says, these will go into eternal punishment. Notice that in Matthew 25, Jesus is not just watching these things happen. He's the one on the throne. He's the one separating the sheep and the goats. He's the one laying the judgment down and sending them away into everlasting punishment. So the meme is wrong. It says Jesus, colonizer Jesus sends sinners to hell. No, no, that's historical Jesus. And he's also a friend of sinners and outcasts. Yes, that's also true. Do you get to remain his friend? Well, will you receive his friendship through the cross? The next meme we get <clears throat> is um, silent in the face of oppression. Jesus is silent in the face of oppression versus liberates the oppressed. Remember the Jewish culture of the time believed that Jesus, uh, that Jesus was, the, if he was the Messiah, was going to deliver them from Roman oppression. They thought Rome's oppressing us, Jesus. If you're really the Messiah, you're going to fight them off. Jesus, he thought they had a different issue. What I'm suggesting is that these two sides, silent in, in, in the face of oppression versus liberates the oppressed. The problem is they define the word oppressed in a way that Jesus doesn't care about nearly as, as much as he cares about a different kind of oppression that progressives never talk about, at least not to my knowledge. And even conservatives hardly ever talk about. Like this, you know, for the political side, almost nobody talks about this because nobody cares about the real Jesus. They want memes. What did Jesus really care about? Let's look at this. Uh, John chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who'd believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What's the opposite of oppression? Free, being free, freedom. And so he promises, hey, look, if you, if you abide in my word, you, you remain in, in, with the truth that I've shared with you. You'll be my disciples. You'll know truth and the truth will set you free. Knowledge will set you free. Not, not an army, not a military, not a, not a civic uprising, not a, not a, not a demonstration, not a law that's going to be passed. None of that. Truth. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, of course, they thought they were oppressed by the Romans, but they didn't think they were enslaved by them. There's a difference. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What oppression is Jesus primarily worried about in your life? It's your sin. Your sin is your oppression. You know, worse than any government can do to you is your own sin in your own heart and your own life, separating you from God and bringing you into bondage to those things. 
worse than any oppression that comes through systemic issues in our culture or in the world around us is your own sin in your own life. And Jesus primarily wants to deliver you from that. This is the thing that I think Jesus cares about a lot more. So we have rules for our life, right, as Christians. Don't oppress others. Show no favoritism. These are Jesus' rules, I think. Don't show favoritism. Treat everyone as a neighbor who you love. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Treat everybody like a neighbor that you love. And if you're oppressed, if you are oppressed, then I think the Christian New Testament teaching is trusting God's future judgment of the oppressor as you wait on the coming kingdom because you know that your citizenship's not of this world. Now, there may be a time for an uprising, but oppression itself is not the biggest priority. It's the gospel and the oppression of sin. It's not the social oppression of, of um, a million things. It's sin. So the next thing that the meme gets at, so again, the, the meme is trying to get away from Jesus's concerns and make it all about their concerns, their political concerns today. The next one down on the list, getting towards the end, is condemns sinners versus critiques religious people. I'm so glad that they memed this so terribly <laughs> so I could talk about it. Um, does Jesus... Does Jesus condemn sinners or critique religious people? Uh, well, why is it either or? Like, aren't religious people that are sinning also sinners? Like when Jesus critiques them, are they not sinners? What do you mean by sinners? What does sinners mean here? See, biblically speaking, the word sinner has a different meaning than often people use it in our modern language. As I just, just talk to normal humans, right? How normal people use the term sinner. Modern people use it very, very different than the Bible. The Bible means you live in regular ways that are in opposition to God. You have a lifestyle that's in opposition to God. Um, so, you, you know, the kind of general flow of your life is, I'm going to do my own thing. I have sin as a habitual, normal part of my life, and I'm okay with that. Um, that's the sinner, one who is in the habit of sinning. What does the world mean, though? Modern people mean this. Oh, so I'm a sinner? Oh, you, you never call anyone a sinner nowadays, right? Instead, you say that they're calling you a sinner because the real offense is calling someone a sinner. So um, the way I hear this happen is it's, a, it's about you're othering me. If you call me a sinner, you're othering me. You're, I'm, I'm now marginalized and I'm an outgroup person. So when you call me a sinner, it means I'm actually the innocent victim and you're the criminal. That's kind of how we, we see it. So when we read this meme, we're, we're, we, we can't really read it very well. Does Jesus condemn sinners? Well, he doesn't arbitrarily outgroup people for no reason, but he definitely condemns sinners in the biblical sense. Does he critique religious people? Absolutely he does. But is that, is that the opposite of condemning sinners? No, it's kind of along the same lines, isn't it? So does Jesus condemn sinners? Well, sort of. Biblically speaking, Jesus Yes, sort of, he condemned, sort of condemned sinners. Um, he warned them that they were under condemnation, told them to repent, and he told them that one day if they didn't repent, they would be judged, right? But he also created a way out, and he told them that they were in this season of grace where they could come and freely be forgiven. It's like, come to bring, you. here's your chance to have a truce with God, to have more than a truce, to have forgiveness with God, to have a relationship with God, perfect and loving and holy and eternal and have eternal life in him. You just repent of sin and embrace his holiness and goodness and truth. Trust in Jesus. He died and rose. So Jesus sort of condemns sinners because he leaves the idea open that if they don't repent, they will be judged. And he does condemn sinners in the sense of telling them that in order to uh, follow him, they do have to turn from sin. But did Jesus critique religious people? Um, more than that, he didn't just critique religious people. He condemned some of them. 
Remember the woes? Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You do this and this. You make him twice as son of hell as you and all this. He said some really strong things that wasn't just a critique. Like, well, I have some objections to the Pharisees' way of doing things. Like, he, like, called them names. You whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He called them names. This is a strong condemnation from Jesus coming upon them. And if they repented, they too could be saved. Now, here's a test for, for you to understand the heart of Jesus. If, if a, um, a sinner who's a prostitute, who's in the porn industry, if they give their life to Christ, are you rejoicing? Probably. Oh, man, I'm so rejoicing. That's great. But what if they're just like a total religious, self-righteous jerk? And they're condemning others and they think that they're righteous people, they're religious, but they're not really followers of Christ. What if they repent and they get saved truly? Are you rejoicing just as much as with the prostitute or the, or the sex worker? And my answer is you should be rejoicing just as much on both sides. We sometimes pick certain people to not, we don't want them to repent. We don't like them. And Jesus didn't do that. He wanted them all to repent. But we need clarity on this term, religious people. Okay, um, biblically speaking, um, there's nothing wrong with being religious. I I'll say this a thousand times. And if you think I'm wrong, read James 1. James chapter 1 where it says, Pure and undefiled, what? Religion before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Read the scripture there. It, it definitely shows you that religion can be a very positive and good thing that God loves. He just wants pure and undefiled religion. He doesn't want extra man-made rules. He doesn't want uh, religion being used as a disguise for sinful behaviors. He doesn't want the power of religious people being used to oppress others. That, those are things he doesn't want. But he absolutely wants you to have religion in, a, in, the, in the pure sense, true religion, true beliefs, true practices towards God. So the problem was never that people were religious. Jesus was not opposed to people because they were religious. Jesus was deeply religious. All the apostles were deeply religious. Every true Christian is deeply religious, whether they admit it or not. The problem is they did specific things. Let's look at those specific things in scripture. What was Jesus's issue? Because it was not that they were religious. Mark 7, verses 6 and 7. It's a, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? Now, Jesus talking to what you call religious people. Well, everyone was religious back then. So you can be more specific. They're religious leaders, specifically Pharisees. And he's, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He goes on and adds, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. One of the big issues Jesus is really radically opposed to is anyone adding extra, extra traditions that are not from God. And, and it's okay to have some traditions, but adding them in the way like they did in the first century, acting like they're the commands of God. So the religious leaders had these beliefs that all their teachings, which were far beyond what we find in the Old Testament, that they were like unwritten traditions that came all the way from Moses. And almost nobody believes that this is true, um, that they had any sort of secret, unwritten tradition, this um, uh, sort of like story tradition that came down through spoken word um, apart from the written word, and that it was kind of like up there as the commands of God. Jesus absolutely rebukes them for it. He cannot stand it. Jesus here is not anti-religion. Jesus is a Bible thumper. Um <laughs> I know this is going to irritate people. Jesus was entirely a Bible thumper. Like he was like, hey, that goes beyond what got, what was written. That goes beyond and against what was written. He continually does this with the religious people of his time. 
he's a Bible thumper. He wants us to go right to the text. I believe that that's one of the major points that we have that's there. Um, another thing Jesus was opposed to is in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28. Now, in this passage, um, the complaint is that they focused on outward appearances of righteousness instead of true godly character. So this, so the first thing Jesus is opposed to is when you add man-made religion to God's true religion, don't add man's traditions. This is, of course, influences my attitude towards so many of the groups out there that pretend that they have this extra biblical tradition that we're all supposed to submit to. And, um, but I won't, I won't get off the trail onto that. Matthew 23, though, the second issue, Jesus was upset with people who focused on outward appearances of righteousness instead of true godly character. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says, for you are like whitewashed tombs. What's a whitewashed tomb? Well, you know, it's, it's an above ground burial chamber and it's painted white. So it looks nice. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. What does he mean by that? He says, outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So they had lots of um, the appearance of religious. Like imagine if I came to you and I was wearing a collar to make me look more, and not saying collars are bad, um, but let's say I was wearing a collar and, and, and behind me were like various religious symbols that we were seeing a lot of. I mean, you, I can see there's one right back here, right? It says, I follow Christ, got a guy carrying a cross um, on my guitar. But let's say there was a lot of that going on. And, and, I was, and, and when I greeted you, I was like, hello, brothers, and welcome to another installment of the godliest YouTube channel where we teach you how to be as godly as Mike Winger. <laughs> what if I was doing this? And I was in my tone of voice and in the clothes that I wear and in everything I did, I tried to look like I was more righteous than you, more righteous than everyone else. But I was ignoring things like real charity, helping those in need, being generous with what I've got, not just tithing the perfect amount, but actual generosity. Um, then I would be falling to the same traps that these Pharisees are. You know, outwardly you appear righteous to others. Like I, I will never miss a Sunday but I'm going to go to the strip club on, on Saturday, right? That's outward. I, I won't, I don't want to be seen as less. I have to look outwardly good. Jesus really hated that. Um, then the third thing Jesus was really opposed to, because he doesn't care about religion. He's fine with religion. He just wants a good religion. Third thing Jesus was opposed to is in John 15, verse 24. Here, he says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. The third thing that Jesus is upset with is when people reject Jesus. This is not, I, I'm putting it that way on purpose because like meme version of Jesus condemns sinners versus critiques religious, religious people. You realize that like, this isn't actually what he, they're, they're not getting the, the heart. Jesus is opposed to man-made religion, hypocritical religion, or guess what? Religion without Jesus, without him at the heart of it. That's a significant issue to Jesus. And that should be my issue as well. Their religion wasn't pure and true. So um, I've got to add something uh, real quick because of the same myths about how Jesus always critiqued religious people and religious leaders as if, and the implication is, he would never critique me. I'm a normal guy. He was only going to be critiquing Joel Osteen. He's only going to critique, um, you know, you fill in the blank money online preacher person. Uh, well, sorry, there's two edges to the sword of Jesus. <laughs> um, here's my favorite verse for talking about this. Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, which everybody thinks they know. 
But do they know it? Good to read it. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. Think about it. Take your time with it. Matthew 7, 11 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, it's so interesting to me here on several aspects. One of them is the idea that Jesus casually calls everybody evil. <laughs> like, like, that's not in the meme version of Jesus. Like, where under historical Jesus does it say, casually calls everyone evil? Like, that's not on the list. That's not on there anywhere. If you then, you know, you, all of you, the whole crowd, the Sermon on the Mount was not to a Pharisees. It was to just everybody. He goes, you know, you evil people, you know how to give gifts. And he tells everybody to repent. Do you get the idea that Jesus's attitude towards humans is that they're all sinners that have to repent? Kind of like that annoying Christian thing that you that a lot of people don't like. Yeah, that came from Jesus, guys. The other thing is he his example is that even though they give good gifts to their children, they're still evil. This to me, I think is important because a lot of people, they think I'm good to my kids. Therefore, I'm a good person. Jesus directly refutes that. You need, you need forgiveness for your sins. You don't just need to try to be a good person. You give good gifts, gifts to your kids. Obviously, they're your kids. But you're still evil and a sinner who needs to repent, who needs to trust in Christ. He's the only way out. So let's go to the next one. Next one. We're getting close to the end here. There's just uh, four more. Um, he endorses church and state or he subverts empire. Oh, man. Can you feel how much... Um, the things Jesus cares about aren't the things that the meme creator cares about. So does Jesus endorse church and state? This one's a bit weird. Um, just because you're obsessing over stuff that Jesus didn't even deal with, really. So does, does Jesus endorse church and state? Sort of. Okay, my, my answer here is I think sort of. And I, I think I have to say sort of because church and state can mean lots of different things to different people and in different historical contexts. Jesus thought, here's some principles. Every authority that's proper, every true authority should be respected. This is a good Christian belief. That's something that is missing in, in our dialogue online. We have very little respect for those who are in authority that we don't agree with and don't like, and we show them very little respect. Um, there's a good time to challenge and push back and say, that's a dangerous and bad idea, but there's still a, some respect that should be there. Um, that seems to be there. Uh, so every authority is to be respected, right? Uh, and personal accountability before God trumps everything. So whether somebody in state or church is commanding you to do something, if that's something God doesn't want, you follow God. So above church and state is God himself. Above church is God. Above church is God. That's important for some who don't realize that. Above church is God. Above state is God as well. So I follow God at all times. Um, so personal account accountability before God trumps everything else. Um, there's also a, a future where Jesus absolutely endorses church and state mixed together, not at the present. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but that is when Jesus returns. When Jesus comes back, he is going to be ruling a political religious kingdom. Absolutely. Like, you're not going to go to, you're going to be standing there in the kingdom of heaven, resurrected, looking at Jesus going, is there proper separation between church and state, Jesus? Because I want to make sure there is. Like, no, there won't be any. Um, Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, these are the apostles, these religious leaders, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now it's going to be beyond that. The, the Israel will be like that sort of fountain point for Jesus ruling the world. But there is a religious political kingdom that Jesus is absolutely building and will build and is looking forward to. It'll be very, very religious. He's the judge of all. Okay, so, but does that endorse current church state models? No, not at all. And here's why. 
this is where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my servants would fight. That would be a current church state model where God is sort of theocratically running the, the, the church and the church is supposed to be a political power wherever they go. But Jesus refutes that. Okay, this is, this is in the future. So eventual church state, presently, church integrate. Church integrate into the world, bring the gospel, keep that as the top priority, have positive influence wherever you are, whatever community, whatever political kingdom you're part of, have a positive influence, but do so to point people to Jesus. This is obviously not what the meme is about. So they like to say also <clears throat> here that Jesus subverted empire. Did Jesus actually subvert empire? Um, how? The problem with these memes is that I, I can't understand how powerful they are when they offer literally no examples of anything. <laughs> it's just claims, right? It's just, it's just claims. It's, it's bare bones. It's claims. How did Jesus subvert empire? Uh, when, when he was asked if they were supposed to pay taxes to Caesar, he said they should. Did he subvert empire then? The Roman Empire? No. Did he foment rebellion? No. He told his disciples to tip, put the sword away, actually, in that moment where they could have had a, a, a real serious battle. Years after Jesus' time, there was a, um, a rebellion from the Jews against the Romans, but this was not a Christian rebellion because it wasn't about Jesus to subvert empire. It's just an issue of priorities. He does that. Subverting empire is not the priority. It's not the top priority of Jesus. There's only one way Jesus subverted the empire that I'm aware of, or went against church and state alike, where both of these things were combated by Jesus. He demands that your allegiance is to Jesus above church, state, or empire, all of the above. Your allegiance is to a different kingdom that is not of this world. And both sides on the meme, both sides miss this issue because some think, oh, well, you know, let's say like America is a, a, a Christian nation. And like, well, there's some Christian, you know, elements in our past. Absolutely. But, but is my Christian, is my Christian commitment tying me to America in particular in that sense? I, no, I think I treat America the way I would treat any nation I'm in because I'm a Christian. But I'm not here to fight against it or to subvert empire or that. That's not the primary issue. If you are following Jesus, you have bigger fish to fry. Let's, oh, let's look at the next one. Okay. This one is, was Jesus a king or a homeless man and child refugee? Um, yeah, you know, this is what happens when you think about memes. <laughs> you know, it's obviously, he was both. He was a king. He was also a homeless man. And he was also a child refugee. But let's talk about that in a little more detail, because I'm curious how it gets used. Um, so Jesus was the king of the Jews. He proclaimed himself as the king of the Jews. But his kingdom was not of this world, right? But he's absolutely the king, the ultimate king, the king of the universe. Okay, so he... He claimed more than any king has ever had or ever will have other than him. But was he a homeless man? Matthew 8, 20 is a verse that can support this. Matthew 8, verse 20. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man, remember that's Jesus talking about Jesus, has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus had, he, was, he had no home. He was homeless. Um, okay, this is true, but... It's not that he actually had no home. If he went to Nazareth, he, he had a home to stay in there, but he left Nazareth on purpose. On purpose. If he was in um, Capernaum, if we look at more details, there was a home there he would stay at regularly, which was Peter's home, but it was even called his home because it's like when he was in Capernaum, that's where he always stayed. So why is it that Jesus tells this person, I have nowhere to lay my head? I think the answer is because Jesus was itinerant. That is, he's traveling from town to town to town. 
He's homeless because he's away from home. He's not homeless because he has no home exactly. That, there's a difference here. He's traveling, right? And this is a picture of us living in this world as though our ultimate home is the one that's coming and this is all just temporary. So he wasn't homeless in the modern sense of you're like, oh, that person's homeless and they're on the street and they're wandering around, you know, like that's not quite it. No, I mean, Jesus, there's, there, he, you know, he knows what it was like to sleep in the rough. He knows what it was like to live off of whatever food somebody gave him. Yes, but it's, I just want to be clear. Like, I just want clarity. Okay, it's not exactly the same thing. There's a connection, but it's not the same. Um, was Jesus a child refugee? That's the last one there. Um, yeah, he was. We don't know how long it lasted. It might have been months, might have been years. Herod tried to kill Jesus. Joseph was warned in a dream, and he took Mary, and they fled, and they went out of Israel to Egypt. Now, they had just received gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Remember those, those Christmas gifts you've heard about? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which were all things that they could have potentially used to finance this just sudden, unexpected journey to go to Egypt. So they went to Egypt. Perhaps they used that, that gold, frankincense, and myrrh to pay for whatever they needed while they were there to pay for their trip home. Sometime later, could have been months, could have been years, they went back to Nazareth. Um, and so was he, were the, was he a refugee? I mean, not once they got back to Nazareth, he's, he's a national, he's a citizen living in his own country, but there was a season where he was a child refugee. That's true. I'm not sure what somebody wants to do with that data. Um, obviously we should help child refugees. I'm just talking about what we say about Jesus matters here. Um, what's the real point they're making in the meme? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to hazard a guess because memes like this, they force you to guess, right? The, how it's being used how this kind of meme is being used. I think it's, they're saying vote Democrat or be politically progressive, politically specifically progressive. Because what does Jesus being a, high, a, a child refugee or a homeless person get you? To care about people in those places, people who are socially low, right? They matter, doesn't, doesn't matter that they're socially low. Do people care about people who are oppressed because Jesus can fit into that category? That, that, that I think is there was saying, oh, and guess what? Guess who, what political party is championing the cause of those people? That's the big, that's the question, the claim we want to ask about. Is it really championing their cause in a way that's effective or not? But I think that's the point. I think this is about getting you to vote certain ways and saying Jesus is endorsing that um, political party. <clears throat> um, yeah. Next. All right, let's do the next one. Here we go. Jesus upholds traditional family unit or Jesus had, had, had half siblings. Now, just so you guys know, this was a popular meme that was getting lots of lots of exposure online. Maybe you've already seen it. I've seen it. Uh, had people asking me to do it. So I responded and said, yes, I'll do it. Just took me like a month and a half because I'm busy. But does Jesus uphold the traditional family unit? Are those those evil white Americans right? <laughs> I mean, that, that's the subtext of the meme, right? Um does Jesus uphold the traditional family unit or did he have half siblings? Because we all know if you have half siblings, you cannot also uphold a traditional family unit, right? Look at me. I have a sister. You guys, you guys don't even want to know my complicated family history. <laughs> I have a full sister. I have two half sisters. I have my dad. My mom and dad got divorced very, very young age. Then I had a stepdad for several years, but not, not since I was 14 for about seven years, had a stepdad um, till uh, that all exploded. Very slow explosion. <laughs> um, am I allowed to support traditional family? I mean, here's me. I'm Mike Winger. I support traditional families. But wait a minute, Mike, you have half siblings. You obviously don't support traditional family. I'm sorry. This meme is actually 
I'm losing brain cells trying to trying to respond to this meme. It's so bad. So did Jesus uphold traditional family, the traditional family unit? Um, first, let's just say what is the traditional family unit? By this, I mean one man, one woman, and their biological kids. Does it mean it's bad if you adopt? They're not your body. No, that's not bad. But do you uphold as ideal, as the ideal situation, a man, a woman, and their biological kids? That's the question. Is this the ideal? Not is it the only acceptable situation? Is it the ideal? Um, and in particular, uh, the man and woman, that's the necessity. Okay, there has to be one man and one woman, and they're married. That's the core of the of the traditional family unit. Does Jesus uphold that? Is he into one man and one woman, not polygamy? One man and one woman marriage. Let's look at this. Matthew 19, 3. And Pharisees came up to him, testing him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Their belief was, and I have a whole, many of you know, I have a three-hour video on divorce and remarriage. Everything the Bible teaches about it. You're welcome to check that out online. Uh, just type Mike Winger divorce. It should pop right up. And they're asking here, it was a debate going on between these two different Jewish camps right? The Shimai camp and the Hillel camp. And they, the different camps were saying, the majority of the, of the group was saying, um, you can divorce for any reason you want. Men can divorce women for any reason they want. It's like a male right. It's a prerogative. You can divorce for any reason you want. So is that lawful? Jesus, can man divorce for any reason he wants? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Notice this, Jesus sees Genesis 1 as the foundation for understanding and answering tough questions about marriage. He made them male and female and said, therefore, based on creation, a man, one guy, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, one girl, and the two shall become one flesh, not the three one, not the seven one, one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Where What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus, we can draw several quick Summary conclusions. Did Jesus uphold a traditional family unit? Yes, and more so. He upheld it as designed by God, not just a cultural phenomenon that was good or healthy and something to be maintained. Although those things are true, but that's not all it is. He thought God designed it. He thought that a man and a woman were, ne were ne necessary, one man, one woman, not just two humans, and that they would have to leave and join, become their own family. The man leaves his father and mother, and the two become one flesh. So there's like a union that takes place in this that is meant to be unbreakable. That's the idea. That's the ideal. That is absolutely a traditional family unit. Now, some are going to respond and be like, Mike, but what about polygamy? What about polygamy? Um, I'll do a short thing on polygamy real quick here because I know, I know the way this is. It, you know, you get it. You get an objection in your head, and it. Uh oh. Uh oh. Please tell me my software didn't just freeze. Oh god. Okay. You get an objection in your head, and then it can be hard to like take seriously whatever you hear after that because you're not hearing an answer to your objection. So Mark 10, 11, and 12, Jesus says this, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, if polygamy is true, this sentence doesn't make any sense. If polygamy is okay, if Jesus thought polygamy was okay, this sentence makes zero sense. The polygamist would have to think, oh, it's adultery if I divorce my wife and marry someone else, but if I just marry someone else without divorcing my wife, it's totally okay. Jesus's whole point is that marriage, the marriage commitment 
excludes polygamy as well as these frivolous divorces. So um, the nature of the marriage commitment is such that it, it, it excludes that. That's a, a, a good hint at the attitude of Jesus. But also there's the phrase that Jesus used earlier about one flesh. Uh, in Matthew, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. The man and his wife become one flesh. They're no longer two but one flesh. They're not three flesh. They're not five flesh. Right? When polygamy happens, the nature of polygamy is it's fundamentally different than the idea of polygamy is not one marriage. It, let's take it the word, for example, polygamy, many marriages, right? Or many, many wives, right? It's not one marriage. It's one guy engaging in lots of marriages, or if it's a woman doing it, one woman engaging in several marriages. So the idea is that you're becoming one flesh with that person, and then you become one flesh with another person, and then one flesh with yet another person, and yet... The nature of Jesus' statements about divorce causing you marry someone else, it's adultery. Well, his whole point is, even if you divorce and marry someone else, it's adultery. So obviously, if you marry someone else without divorcing, still adultery. <laughs> it would be insane to take Jesus any other way. This is reinforced by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says in, in the passage, and we're going to go over this soon in my Women in Ministry series, he says in the passage that a woman has authority over her husband's body, like to claim sexual privileges as a spouse, and the husband has that for his wife. They both have a right to exclusively claim sexual privileges in marriage. That doesn't work if polygamy is a thing, because no longer does the woman have that authority, because usually polygamy is, is men with multiple wives. This is why 1 Timothy 3, polygamists are excluded from church leadership. Yeah, husband and one wife, you, you can't have multiple wives. And, uh, and be in church leadership. You can still be saved. You can be Christian. It's a, it's, a, it's, an, it's a non-optimal situation. And I have other videos where I talk about these things in more detail. But do you get the idea? Jesus is absolutely affirming a traditional family unit here. I mean, who made this meme? <laughs> Jesus doesn't uphold a traditional family unit because he had half siblings? Okay, let's go to the last one. Final, final piece of psychotic memeage is this. Jesus... According to them, colonizer Jesus endorses holy war, but the historical Jesus, by which you can read progressive Jesus, um, is nonviolent. Does Jesus endorse holy war or is he nonviolent? These are, these are the options. And for clarity, uh, what do we mean by holy war? Because I think that we need to get some clarity on this. This, this, is, this issue of does Jesus endorse holy war is more, is more complicated. Again, I'll be accused of being black and white. Of course, if you're too simple, people accuse you of being black and white. But if you're too careful, people accuse you of like qualifying everything and then they just dismiss you for that. But um, but let's be honest, there's a percentage of people who are, you know, they're just going to find something to disagree with. So I shouldn't worry about it. So holy war. Holy war can be a war, one definition, a war that's meant to spread your religion. That's one kind of holy war. This is in Islam. Islam has these kinds of holy wars. Uh, Muhammad did it, right? The, you know, my I follow Jesus. Jesus never did that. Never commanded it. Actually argued against it, right? He told his disciples not to. His kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, servants would fight, right? We're just, we're to spread our gospel with words only. That's the. I mean, that's what the gospel is. It's good news. It's a spoken message to communicate information about God. So, like, that's my agenda. I don't come. I come with the sword of the spirit, not with the sword. But Islam. Uh, 
Muhammad actually murdered many, many, many people, pagans as well as Jews, as part of his holy war to spread Islam and to force submission. In fact, the word Islam means submit, and the idea here is force you to either uh, pay a tithe and a tax to us and we control you, kind of like slaves, or you become Muslims, in which case you can have rights. That's a holy war that Islam endorses, that Christianity never endorses, that Jesus never endorses specifically, even if some Christians have tried to do that in the past. If we ask Jesus, however, if he'd support a different kind of holy war, I think his answer would be yes. So would Jesus support any war that God supports or commands? So if, if you said, if you could ask Jesus this question, he was about to bother answering you. Jesus, hypothetically, if the father endorses a war, are you going to support that war? This one seems like a no-brainer. If God were to actually, the real God who created all things, were to actually say, that war is right. Of course, Jesus would support that, right? He's not going to be in disagreement with the Father. Jesus is God. So that's really kind of like a just war theory, which I don't know that much about just war theory. I don't want to comment on it too much. But the basic idea is that violence can, in some circumstances, be the right thing to do, be an appropriate thing to do. I will say this, though, and I can build a case for this. John, uh, not because I like war and I'm a warmonger and, and I'm, I'm so full of rage and bloodlust. But because of this, John 10, 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Now, there's obviously a whole debate. I have a video on this topic, this whole like, well, call them gods. What's that about? I have a whole thing on that. But notice Jesus's principle. Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus believed scripture can't be broken. He thought you can't just disagree with the Old Testament, okay? You can't just break the scripture. You've got to let it stand and say what it says. There are in the Old Testament where, uh, you know, times where God, he endorses violence. And those are times where that violence was proper and good. And if you want to say it was holy, well, in, in some lesser sense, it was, it, was, it was a war that was justified in the eyes of God. okay. And many people think that Ukraine fighting their defense against Russia is one of those wars. Like a war where, oh, hey, God's going to be on your side for sure. Even though not everything you do on your side will be right. Not everything you do will be good. There'll be weird stories and horror and bad things that have happened on both sides. But in general, the defense, the self-defense of your nation is appropriate. Um, and I'd like to do a video on this topic sometime. But what about specific wars? Let's let's then say, okay, so in principle, we don't fight to spread Christianity. That holy war is bad and totally opposed to the principles of Jesus. Um, yet, looking back at the Old Testament, we find this little blip of time where God does use Israel in fighting against the people as judgment against them for their sins and to give Israel a nation because he's the sovereign of the world and he's judging them. So what about specific wars in our future, though? Like, what, I mean, everybody puts a cross on their shield right? in history. They all put crosses on their shield. They claim that their God is, is, is with them and defending them. And you'd have, in history, you'd have before battles on both sides, you'd have chaplains in the name of Jesus blessing the military here and blessing the military here. What this tells me is that we are a, when it comes to war, humans are like teenagers when it comes to who they're going to marry. <laughs> so I've learned this as a youth pastor for years. Um, teens will think, God's calling me to marry that person. And then like a year later, that person. And a year later, that person. Because they can't tell the difference between their heart and God. But nations throughout history have been the same way with war. 
God's calling me to fight against that nation and that nation and that. And both sides will think God's calling him. So generally speaking, the history of humanity says you probably don't have a holy war going on right now. You know, you're, it, most likely you're, you're wrong to be fighting most of the time. Um, never wars to spread the faith. Uh, wars in legitimate self-defense, that seems consistent in scripture. Yet we're not of this world. And so we wait mostly peaceful. So that's the next question then. Was Jesus nonviolent? That's the last statement on the meme. Was Jesus nonviolent? I mean, yes-ish. It depends on what you mean by nonviolent. Because if when you say nonviolent, you mean total pacifist, principally he was a pacifist. I think you can't sustain that. But if you want to say that he conducted himself in an incredibly peaceful and nonviolent fashion and led in it being an example for us to do the same, yes, absolutely. It's just when you move over the realm to pacifism where there's no exceptions to that rule that I think that you've violated the historical Jesus. Jesus never led an army, um, not even to throw off the colonizing effects of Rome, right? He considered his incredible, think of this, Jesus knew his capacity for violence was in, intense. Let me take you to a scripture that talks about Jesus and his own knowledge of his capacity for violence, yet he choose not to, chose not to do it. Matthew 26, verse 52 then Jesus said to him, now this is when uh, Jesus is being taken away in the garden and Simon Peter takes a sword out and he strikes the high priest's servant, cuts off his ear. Then Jesus says to him, says to Peter, put your sword back in its place. Now he told him to have a sword. So it seems as though it was there for self-defense, but not for offense um, and not for um, maybe even just to have peace through equally mutually assured destruction or something. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't like a nuke or something. I don't mean to parallel it to that. I'm trying to find a way of explaining that by having swords, maybe it prevented more violence from having happening at that moment. Um, so he says, put your sword back for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Then look at his capacity for violence. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now, if you know your old Testament, you know that Jesus means to destroy all these, all these, uh, um, uh, all the guard that have come, in this case, from the chief priests. They're the, it's the Jewish temple guard, probably. So he, he could just demand the angels show up and just decimate them. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that, must, that it must be so? Jesus, if he was violent, y'all would know it because there'd be supernatural violence happening all the time. I think a better understanding it's not that Jesus um, is, is for holy war in general, and it's not that Jesus is total pacifist either. I think it's better to say that now is a time of grace, and Jesus is in a not violent yet moment. So if we go to Matthew chapter 24, um, <clears throat> verse uh, 41, I believe it is. 51. Jesus here talks about his, his, his coming, right? If I back up a bit, you can see, um, <clears throat> it's talking about when the son of man shows up, right? The, the son of man is going to come. Nobody knows when that day or hour is going to be right. But when the coming of the son of man comes, this is going to happen. And at the end of it all, verse 51, it says about those who are wicked, um, that this master, who's an analogy for the son of man, for Jesus himself, that he'll cut him in pieces, the wicked man and put him in, put him with the hypocrites in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is definitely, there is a, a, there is one holy war coming and it's not even going to be a contest. It's Jesus just coming back to judge the world. And that's, that's going to be the end of it. 
So does Jesus endorse holy war? I mean, it has multiple meanings, right? War to spread your religion? No. War that God commands? Yes. The problem is God's not commanding like hardly any war at all. We only have really one small historical example at one moment in the Old Testament. Even throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we don't have more examples of that kind of thing. So, so theoretically, yes, but pragmatically, the answer is probably basically no. And two, uh, three, does Jesus endorse war that is waged with a belief that God is in approval of it? Only if God is actually in approval. So, um, so yeah, Jesus is not total pacifist, but he's incredibly nonviolent, and he's at least pacifish. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what I don't know what to tell you. It's like you know, you, violence would be a last resort. Violence would be a something that we want to avoid if when we can. But there's times where violence is appropriate, and it seems that um, one of those ways is when the government specifically is being violent because criminals are breaking the law and they've brought this wrath down upon them. Romans chapter 13, Paul talks about this, where it says, brothers, don't avenge yourselves, right? But it also endorses government bringing justice with a sword. So all that to say, it's more complicated than Jesus either endorses holy war or is nonviolent. Life's more complicated. Jesus is more complicated than this horrible meme Jesus. Neither of those is Jesus. The whole thing is false. The whole thing is false. I hope this helps you guys understand the real Jesus a little bit better. His kingdom is kind of important. And he confronts you right now today to ask you like, hey, are you going to follow him? Are you going to repent of your sin and follow the real Jesus? Or are you going to keep making these shallow meme Jesuses to support your agendas and not actually have to change your life to follow him? And he, he demands a lot of you and me. Like in my life, like he demands a lot of me. I want to I want to give him his proper place in my life as a full Lord submission and being seeing me get changed hopefully more and more all the time thank you guys for joining um, I'm Pastor Mike Winger this has been a meme and, and I hope that you found it helpful I don't do these videos too much but I don't know maybe we'll do more meme discussion content it really helps bring us clarity about the real Jesus I will be with you guys on Friday for the Q&A that's Friday at 1 p.m pacific time you'll load your questions in the chat and I'll answer them to the best of my ability telling you I don't know when I don't know which does happen more often than I'd like and that's it. Thank you, Mods, for being there. Thank you, everybody, for showing up. Lord bless you. Keep you. Set your eyes on Jesus. Let him be as big as he really is.